I feel like who you are today doesn't need to define who you are tomorrow. And I feel like we can be whoever we want to be if we're willing to make the investment. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the behavior-based UX research partner for enterprise leaders who need an independent perspective to align hearts and minds, and also the home of New Zealand's first and only world-class human-centered research and innovation lab. You can find out more about what we do at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Dr. Avra Martin. Avra is the Director, Chief of Staff, and Head of Research Operations and Strategy at ServiceNow, a global enterprise software company that's busy making the world of work better for everyone. At ServiceNow, Avra's role is as important as it is multifaceted. Amongst other things, she is responsible for leading strategic initiatives, building bridges across functions, directing financial strategy, supporting the growth of other UX leaders, and acting as a trusted advisor to the VP of UX Research and Insights. Avra also continues to lead ServiceNow's ReOps team, a team that she established after joining the company in 2018. Before ServiceNow, Avra was a director of research at UC San Diego, where she led the operations of a multi-million dollar endowed research unit comprised of 120 faculty and focused on geriatric mental health and ageing. A generous contributor to the field, Avra has previously shared her insights in forums like the Awkward Silences podcast, the ReOps conference, and as a contributor to the Dovetail blog. An energetic, empathetic, and experienced leader, I've been looking forward to today's conversation. Avra, hello, and a very warm welcome to the show. Oh, hello, Brendan. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was amazing. <laughs> hey, well, it's it's all you. I didn't do anything other than write up all the highlights of, uh, of a fabulous career so far. And one of the things that I didn't mention that I did learn about you, Avra, when I was preparing for today is that for almost seven years alongside your postdoc and then the leadership of the research unit and right up until you started working in tech, you were a licensed marriage and family therapist yeah. where you, and I'll quote you now, as per your LinkedIn profile, provided strength-based systems therapy from a socio-cultural attachment lens to individuals, couples, and families. I have to admit that kind of blew my mind, and I'm still not really sure what that is. So could you please tell me what exactly did that involve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've been really excited since we talked in December about getting together. So here we are eight months later. Finally on calendar. Um, what does that mean? So it's interesting because I, I knew that you were going to ask me kind of about my history today. And I was thinking about like, what new would I really bring to the table? And I think one thing I haven't talked much about is my career in as a therapist. When I was finishing my undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a researcher. And I interviewed a ton of people about kind of their jobs in mental health, social workers, marriage and family therapists, psychologists, et cetera. 
And the more I talked to marriage and family therapists, the more I thought like, wow, I feel like that's a profession I could really get behind, like really sitting in a room with people, with their emotions, with their stuff and really helping them kind of sort that out and figure out the best way forward. Right. It's done at the heart of it is just like human behavior and, and really trying to, you know, help in profession. And so I got my master's in marriage and family therapy. And in the last six months of my master's program, I kind of changed my mind and was like, no, I do want to do research. So I kind of almost got like re reinvigorated, but I wanted to do research with kind of this systemic lens. And so I went on and got my PhD in marriage and family uh, therapy with a specialization in medical family therapy. And then I really had the opportunity to do both. So I got to really um, pursue a research career at UCSD as part of my postdoc, really focused on serious mental illnesses, but really bringing in that perspective of family resilience, community resilience, and the way that we operate within a system. And at the same time, actually, to back up a little bit, uh, and to be a licensed marriage and family therapy, you have to do a lot of hours a lot of clinical hours, 3000 actually. And so I did a number of different, uh, I pursued a number of different places and disciplines in order to get those hours. One being I worked in hospice for about two years. So working with family that were very near end of life, I worked in a um, clinic for low income folks where I was focused on helping families who were facing diabetes diagnosis and really how the system comes together to address that illness. Uh, and then right about the time I was getting licensed, I joined a, a group practice where I was focusing on couples work as well as seeing families with children diagnosed with autism. And that's really kind of where the attachment work started coming in. I specialized in a therapy called emotionally focused therapy that really um, is about creating secure attachments and relationships. Um, a lot of the maladaptive behaviors that we see in relationships are due to insecure attachments, whether they, they're uh, avoidantly attached or whether they're enmeshed. Um, and so it's really getting to a place where people feel secure, they feel trust in their relationship, whether it be in a couple relationship or whether it be, you know, in a friend relationship or in a, a parent child relationship. And so that attachment based approach was really about creating that security and allowing people to be seen. I'm really thinking about the way that a system operates, not just within the familial system, but really in the broader context of the community as well. Listening to you describe what's involved and the types of places and things that you did to get those 3,000 clinical hours, it strikes me as, perhaps I'm projecting here, but quite a confronting, quite a heavy, quite a um, important part of people's lives that you're playing a role in. Yeah. What was it that brought you? I know you said you interviewed some people about this type of work, but what was it that really brought you or called you to spend part of your life doing this particular type of work? Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think even when I was little, I wanted to be a psychologist, which is a really weird thing for a child to want to be, <laughs> uh, because I think I'm just like a very naturally curious and empathetic person. Um, but fun fact about me, and I don't think something I've shared previously, is, is my senior year of high school, I actually, uh, my mom was a cosmetology teacher, and so, and I went and got a manicuring license. And so from 17 through 
graduate school, probably 27, 30, I was a manicurist. And I almost feel like that role is so similar to being a therapist. Like people come and they talk to you and you connect with people on a very relational level, but it is very much a one-sided interaction in the same way that therapy is, right? It's not, it's not a friendship necessarily, but it's, it's almost like a, a business transaction where you're really hearing from them and really the complexity of people's life, um, the different excitements and hardships that people go through, the maladaptive behavior that we take part in, even when we know that it's not good for us. And I think that that was at the heart of why I pursued a degree in psychology and then marriage and family therapy. Like I wanted to do more of that work, but in a more trained way where I could really help people to, to really make a positive impact on people's lives. Um, I wasn't in that position necessarily when I was a manicurist because I wasn't really trained to do that type of work. But I think, you know, through graduate school, you start to to build those foundations to help people lean on the strengths that they have and, I guess, actualize them to their best selves. So you, I get the sense you must have seen quite a few people, even when you were a manicurist, you, you would have had many, many, many conversations with people before you made this something that was a profession from all these conversations that you've had with people, both as a manicurist, but also professionally as a therapist, what have you seen or learned or, or, or experienced that surprised you about people and their behavior as you were trying to help them to become a, a better version of themselves? That's a really great question. And I think at the heart of it is really helping people to believe and trust that they can be that best version of self. I feel like in the world, there tends to be a fair bit of self-doubt and people not really, I don't know if they don't feel like they're worthy of great things or don't want to, I, I don't know if it's not want to do the work, but like really like sit in that discomfort that you need to sometimes to grow. And so I don't know, I, I feel like I just was really committed to helping people over that hump for people to really see their true greatness and what they are capable of and helping them to like lean in with support to get there, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I don't know if the, what I'm about to ask you next is perhaps framed in the true spirit of the knowledge that I'm seeking here. But if we were to think about your practice as a therapist or perhaps with therapy in general, and you mentioned the level of self-doubt out there that exists and that it sounded like half the job is actually helping people to realize that they have what it takes to actually be better. What was the success rate, if you like? How able in your experience were people to actually get over that hump and to to really uh, get the most and the benefit out of the therapy that was being provided. Yeah, I mean, if you, unfortunately, people they get out what they put in, and in therapy we have kind of categories, and in order for people to really benefit from the process and meet their goals, you know, they have to be a consumer of therapy. 
they have to be there because they want to be there, not because their family member said to be there or, you know, there's some sort of ulterior motive. Like it really has to be them saying, I'm done with this version of myself and I'm ready to move into this version, the better version. I want to get rid of these things that are self-limiting, that are holding me back, that are keeping me from that best life that's possible. So like they, they have to be ready. And, you know, so success rate, I, I don't know. That's, that's really, that's really hard to say, but I know the people that are most successful are the people who are willing to do the work and who are ready and who want to be in that next place. And there was times in my career where I would see somebody for a period of time and we wouldn't make a lot of progress. One thing that I know is you can't work harder than your clients. You can't want it for them more than they want it for themselves. And you can't talk somebody into changing. And sometimes it would feel a bit like Groundhog's Day where it's like, didn't we have this conversation last week? Like, why aren't we doing anything better? <laughs> and so we tend to just call that out, right? Like, are you willing to, to do the work? Like, cause it feels like maybe you're wasting both of our time. It feels like maybe you're wasting your money right now. And so, you know, like either show up or let's, let's get out of this insanity spiral. Um, and maybe they would take a break and then come back and be ready. So you weren't afraid to hold the mirror up a bit of tough love. sounds like. I tend to be not confronting in a negative way, but in the, the most empathetic way possible. Well, you're going for their, the best outcome for them. So, yeah, I totally hear you there. Was it a hard decision to stop practicing? Yes and no. So, so when, I, when I was practicing, I was practicing part-time. So I was at UCSD 40, 50 hours a week doing research, leading our research program. And then I was in private practice. I would say between like 18 and 22 hours a week or so, I was seeing clients. Um, and that's a really tough calendar, like schedule to keep up. I would say by the time that I made the transition to ServiceNow and to industry, I was probably burned out on both accounts because my plan really was to take a break and then establish myself at ServiceNow and then reconsider how I wanted to have a private practice in the future. Um, I kind of wanted to refocus around fitness, which is kind of my second love. But then I realized that, you know, in this type of leadership role, I still got to lean on those skills every day. I think that empathy for people, understanding human behavior, understanding how to lean into people's strengths to help to get them motivated and focused, like those come through in my everyday work. And so I didn't feel like there was a piece missing in the way that I thought there would be. I understand that at some point, so talking about this point of transition out of academia into uh, tech, at some point when you were running the department, you got that, I suppose I describe it as an itch, that sort of will to try something new to, to get into tech. And I understand that you had a friend in the industry and you met with them for coffee and, and you brought along yeah. your CV. How did that conversation go? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, it, well, I mean, it went well. It, it ended up fine, right? I mean, I'm here. It was humbling, to say the least. I mean, academics, in some ways, you're only as good as your CV. Really, it is a publish or perish type environment. And so, you know, I have this very sexy 27-page CV that <laughs> I, I can just say it now. And he, yeah. was, he was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand why. <laughs> um, 
No, I mean, it was, it was really interesting to think about how to really translate the things I'd been doing for all of these years into business outcomes and what drives business value and really table all of those things because that was my entire identity is these papers that three people probably read. <laughs> well, you did say it was humbling. It sounds it like it was very fruitful as well. Like you said, um, you ended up making that transition from academics into industry. And I read the follow-up post on Medium that you wrote uh, about your REOPS conference presentation, which you were exploring in there some of the various paths that the yourself and other team members, uh, the people that work with you and for you, have taken to arrive in, I think, research ops specifically was the context. And you said about this, and I'll just quote you now, you said, it is important to first identify your superpowers, the hard and soft skills that make you an asset to any role, and then articulate them in a quantifiable way that demonstrates how they relate to the role you want to obtain. So when you applied for that first role at ServiceNow, possibly with some help from your friend, you know, going through your 27-page uh, brilliant <laughs> academics uh, CV, what skills did you emphasize the most and how did you decide that those were the skills that mattered for that role, which just for, the, for context for people listening, it was the role of Senior Research Operations Manager? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, at the time, Research Operations as a discipline was very much in its infancy. So there wasn't a lot of literature out there about what that meant. And at ServiceNow, it was probably even more nebulous like, because there was nothing. You know, I was kind of the first person entering this discipline. Um, but I really thought about, you know, from an organizational infrastructure point of view, like what does it take to make a business run? And what does it take the business of operations to run? And so, you know, at UCSD, we had a, a very large endowment uh, of money. And so really talking about like the way that that operational spending was managed. We had funding that came from um, internal sources and external sources like multi-million dollar grants with the National Institute of Health. And so how we managed up to 20, 25 studies at any given time from very small studies to very large studies, how we went around resourcing and capacity for those studies, whether it be um, the individuals who were uh, collecting data, the people, uh, statisticians that were analyzing the data, et cetera. So really thinking about like, what would we need for those studies to run successfully? You know, something that ever, I'm sure if, if anybody's listened to me before is something near and dear to my heart is um, really capitalizing on the um, human subjects governance that comes from academic research through IRBs and making sure that we are doing our best for people um, and that we're seeing participants for you know, being humans and not just you know, a, a data collection vehicle. The staff management, of course, you know, I managed a very large uh, cohort of folks at UCSD from uh, research associates through medical students through postdocs. And so really what, the way that I approached uh, leadership in a very um, 
unique way for each person. Um, communication. So everything's really about communication, you know, whether it be, I think probably across all jobs. And so, you know, I think really highlighting those communication skills, ability to share at the right level, dependent on if you're communicating with a VP or if you're communicating, you know, to your larger organization. So like really thinking about those things from an organizational perspective that I had done in the past that I felt like would be applicable at the business level. And when you were done with the revamp of the CV, just how many pages did it end up being? It, it was it was two. It was two pages, <laughs> but there there was a little like appendix that had you know highlight publications because I couldn't completely let it go. Yeah, fair enough. Fair mm-hmm. enough. I imagine a lot lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears went into uh, <laughs> into those papers. So fair yeah. enough. You mentioned uh, just previously about the importance of things like institutional review boards, the emphasis that gets placed in academics on ethics and, uh, well, this is me riffing off that now, but but treating people as, as people is something that you mentioned. Now, I heard Holly Cole, who's the CEO of the Research Ops community and you speaking on the Research Ops podcast, and she um, she asked you about IRBs. You said that they were very important, just like you did here. But later on in the conversation, uh, she asked you another question, which was, did you miss them? You said no, but that you appreciated what they taught you. And so I was curious, what have you borrowed from your time in academics and applied at ServiceNow in standing up that research ops function? What sort of goodies did you take from that part of of your life and bring forward into the current chapter? Yeah, that sounds right. A little conflicting, but it sounds right because I do appreciate them. I think, unfortunately, IRBs all, all often feel pretty like kind of bureaucratic red tape. And so I think that's the real issue. And I think they kind of get a bad rap just be, because of that. But, you know, ultimately, like when we think about human subjects and we think about data and privacy and governance, you know, these are all hot topics right now. And and they should be. Right. I mean, our data is more prevalent and out there than it has ever been before. And so really making sure that when people trust you to collect their data, to have an interview with you, to complete a survey, that you are treating their data in the best possible way. Um, Having data retention policies, like, do you need to have this video for more than 180 days after this research is complete? Probably not, and that's somebody's intellectual property. You know, so really thinking about, like, what is the, the baseline that you should have for protecting human subjects and anything that comes with it, whether it be video, auto recordings, transcripts, um, demographic information, all of those things. So really, you know, making sure that we're staying considerate of those things. Um, one thing that we are really instituting this year is more of a consent process. It's going to be far more lightweight than it was in academics. I mean, we were having people sign 10-page consents at one point in time because we were doing medication studies. Um, This is, you know, just one page where people really understand, like, why we're collecting this data, what is this for, how will this drive product decisions, how will their data be stored, how will it be used, what are their rights as a human subject to pull that data, right? Um, So I I feel like these are kind of just these attributes and this focus on, you know, treating human subjects fairly and as a real asset that I've kind of brought over. I also have, you know, members of my team who wholeheartedly 
are dedicated to this this subject. And I think it's kind of, it's beautiful to see because I think sometimes in the collection process, we can just get really, really focused on how can we move quickly instead of really seeing, you know, that there's people at the other end of this. The move from academics into industry, I've heard you talk about the feeling that you had and you were touching on wanting something that was a little bit more fast paced than the academic world. And you've just been explaining there the level of rigor that gets or has to legally get has to get applied um, when you're doing things that involve you know medical treatments or whatever it may be but that in industry it sounds like it's almost a process of right sizing that for the job at hand and I was curious about um, something else that you'd said on the research ops podcast which was touching on the pace of change that you've experienced in industry or that we have all experienced, those of us that work in industry. And you said about this, you have to be incredibly flexible as research operations professionals and understand that things are always going to change because the needs of an organization change over time and that's okay. So you're talking also earlier there about bringing in a different consenting process to help people understand what they're there for and what we're going to do with their information once it's captured. Have you always been so comfortable with change or is this something that you've had to work at over time in your career? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Have I always been this comfortable with change? Probably not. I think I think as I've grown and matured I'm probably more flexible than I was previously because I just I don't know I just trust the process a little bit more I think sometimes rigidity can can slow you down and can really halt kind of like that that creative flow but yeah I mean I think it's probably early in my career I was probably very regimented and really focused on on process and making sure that like we follow the process and like dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And now I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is somewhere where we can ask forgiveness. You know, I think we kind of, kind of pick and choose which areas we do that. Would it be in human subjects, protection and ethics and governance? Probably not. It would it be in creatively recruiting and maybe not always getting that, final checkoff sales approval, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think we kind of have to ch- uh, pick and choose our battles. I do think if we're too rigid, it can kind of keep us from, from being creative in our approach to problem solving. So yes, I think I probably have changed quite a bit in my career. I want to talk with you now about part of what you did when you were standing up the research ops practice, and that was the engagement or the emphasis on engagement with other UX research leaders that you had. You know, these, um, I've heard you talk about before, weren't just the most senior leaders in the UX research function, uh, but you were doing this to understand their needs and to give them the visibility of what you were working on. What was it that that engagement, perhaps with some reflection now over the long, longer term or the midterm, what has that given you that you wouldn't have or you believe you wouldn't have received otherwise? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to go back and think about how I positioned that previously. And I think it's probably in that, number one, uh, I've been very blessed as part of the leadership team that my peers are the workflow leads. 
you know? And so I feel like I have a direct line to them and their needs at any given time. And those have really changed over the years. When I came, I was about the ninth, 10th person in the organization. And now we have a hundred plus people in our organization. And so what worked five years ago is not necessarily what works today. And our, our problems kind of change over time. And so making sure that, that that's not a one and done conversation and that we're always thinking about what are the needs of the organization now? What, where do we potentially even have some operational debt that we need to go back and rethink, et cetera. Um, in addition, you know, my team, I, I do feel like they're very good at taking the researchers along in the journey. Like we don't, we don't just sit in, in a room and think about the processes that we want to oppress people with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like we try to understand like what's the needs of the organization, how, you know, how would our, our researchers in the organization, how do they want to address that problem and what, what can we do to make a very low weight process for them to, to follow? Are we awesome at that all the time? No, we're not, you know, um, like in the customer engagement realm, it's still a it's still a huge hairy problem in enterprise recruiting, you know, personas across all of our product portfolios for a hundred plus person organization. You know, we started with a process back in 2019 that was pretty damn heavy, and you know what? We've just we've gone in and we've iterated and we've iterated and we've iterated in concert with our our researchers. Is it perfect? No, but it is very much still a living process that we're working on constantly and taking feedback. And so I think making sure that, you know, within our research organization and even cross-functionally, whether it be with design, product content, PM, et cetera, is making sure that we're always taking on the perspective of others and not, you know, just going and deciding how we're going to approach any, any specific problem. And this is something that you have personally invested time in understanding. And by that, I mean, you, alongside your role of standing up this team, you are also managing a UX research team uh, for ServiceNow's AI solutions. And so you, you personally uh, <laughs> were directly connected with researchers and not sitting in that room, like you were saying, and coming up with oppressive policies on your own. And you said about this, and I'll just quote you now, this is a brief quote, it gave me a beautiful look into the day-to-day -day life of our UX researchers. So what is it that you remember noticing from that day-to-day, -day, that insight perhaps or that thing you observed that you were then able to bring back into the way in which you were developing the function? I mean, that role was just a, a blessing. I mean, it was probably like the hardest 18 months of my life. <laughs> mm, busy job. Um, Both two jobs, right? It very much was two jobs because the way of working from an operational perspective and the way of working from a UX research manager perspective and managing a team, it's just very, very different. Like even when you think about just like tasks, activities, like mental models. Um, but it did give me a really unique view to some of the challenges that our UX researchers face when they're working, you know, with engineering, product management, design, product content, content, you know, um, design, et cetera. And really like, how do we collaborate? Uh, how do we track work? You know, customer engagement and recruitment was even greater highlighted for me as being such a challenge and barrier that we face as an organization. And so I think by being in that role, I was able to see the pace that UX research needed to move at, the level of insights and information that 
our stakeholders needed, the level of collaboration that is warranted every day. And so I think being able to bring those back into operations and figure out how we do that better. I mean, again, it was just really a gift that was given to me. Um, I think it just makes me better, even in my role today, is being able to have that perspective of what it's like to actually manage research at ServiceNow. Yeah, and your role has changed. I believe it was around a year ago now that you took on the role of Chief of Staff for the VP. And I want to talk to you about that in, in some depth, actually, Something you were saying there about your insight into research and you were talking about um, researchers' relationships with cross-functional peers like engineering uh, and I suppose associated with that is product as well. And something that I feel being a researcher and speaking with other researchers that's fairly universal is this desire of ours to have some impact with all the work that we're doing. Yeah, And it's... Um, very much our role is very much reliant on our ability to influence others. We don't really have any direct levers that I've identified anyway that we can pull in order to get an insight into a product. It's all done through communication, whether it's directly or asynchronously in terms of the outcomes of our work. And you were asked a few months back about where you'd like to have impact in your new role as chief of staff. And you said, and I'll quote you now, I really would love to make some impact in the area of how we do planning across the product life cycle in a way that brings research and design in early. I think we often still have a very product management engineering driven product life cycle. So what do you suspect that would need to change both within and also external to the research organization for that to happen? Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, that's lovely. I, I'm like, oh, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not too controversial. Uh, and and I, I mean, I love that because that, that's an effort that we're actually really involved in right now. Um, actually, I, I met yesterday with somebody on our product operations team about this subject, which is like, how do we create more time for discovery? as well. Like I think, you know, product management is often very focused on the current release and they don't have the time or the resources really to be thinking multiple releases ahead where often you see research, what, two, three releases ahead, right? And so how do we join each other there in a product team that has the bandwidth and the space to actually think in a more uh, generative way? And so, you know, this is a big, hairy problem. I love that I wanted to tackle it, and but um, that was maybe a baby bit naive in that um, this is not something that's solved easily. So what, what we're trying to accomplish right now is kind of piloting a shift left in the PDLC and the product um, development lifecycle to see, if, even from a resourcing perspective, how do we create more space where research design, product management can work multiple releases ahead to really identify a total addressable market, what are, you know, what are the personas, their needs, their requirements, et cetera. So I think that this is, even from a resource and capacity perspective, I think that's where the problem gets hardest to solve when you have everybody kind of running at the upcoming release. I think we're going to get there. Uh, the, the conversation yesterday was really about how do you measure the impact of shifting left? 
right? Which is so interesting because there's a lot of like lagging indicators. I can tell you in two to three releases, if it worked, right? We're going to see maybe increased NPS or increased CSAT or increased USAT or, you know, um, more adoption of new products, you know, so these are all great. Um, but like, what can we measure now? Is it engineering stories? Is it like yes, less usability issues? Like how, how can we measure the impact of shifting left quickly? Um, so these are all problems we're trying to solve, but I, I can tell you it's something that, that's top of mind and we are actually working on it. It's a tougher problem than maybe I thought it was even six months ago. I don't know if I'm answering the question. <laughs> yeah, well, hundred. I mean, it's, it's it is it is a thorny problem, right? And we all we all have read or listened to talks or whatever it may be of how we, in a perfect world, would all be working together, and the types of cadences that research and engineering and product would be engaged in. And and it sounds it sounds wonderful, but you're actually in the belly of the beast, right? You know, th this is the this is the real world where you've got different organizations with perhaps different priorities and different incentives at play. Yeah. But if we bring this back down to your ability to build relationships across functions, well, what is the particular approach that you take to that? I mean, you have an extensive history in psychology and in therapy. You're also a researcher, so you've got a keen understanding of human behavior. How do you open up these conversations and, and continue to have them? about such difficult things. I thoroughly believe that like your ability to influence is, is only as good as the relationship you have with people, you know? So I think at the heart, and I've said this in previous podcasts before, is really understanding like what drives the different disciplines, your different stakeholders, like what do they value? What is going to help them in their career, right? Like, like what do they need to do to be successful? Um, I think really understanding that and then also understanding the whole person. Like I feel really blessed that I feel like the relationships that I have with stakeholders are, are deeper than just, I don't know, whatever project or initiative we're working on. Like, who is this person? What do they value both personally and professionally? How can we get there together? And like really, really starting there, you know, if they're being assessed on this current release and they need to validate this thing, get it out the door, but you're like, but what are we doing about this? Like, how do we balance that out? Okay. So this is what you care about, right? This, this very moment. Okay. Let's figure out how we can address that, but let's also consider in a three month, six month plan, how we can take a step back and maybe address this thing as well. You know, so really, you know, I think, I think we often get really caught up as humans in pushing our own agenda. And then what we do is we just become very conflictual and like just kind of tied up in that. So I think, you know, really seeing the best in people, um, figuring out how we can, we can all win <laughs> in this and then really trying to, I don't know, just see the whole person, right? We're, we're more than we are at work. And I think sometimes we just get so caught up in, you know, work, Brendan, and oh my gosh, he's the uptight against this deadline. And it's like, well, why? What's going on for him? What pressures is he experiencing? Is it internal? Is it professional? Is it personal? What could I do to make that better? Because if I could make that better for you, then you're more likely to, to hear what I'm trying to say as well. So I think there needs to be just a little bit more of that in, in our professional life. 
I 100% agree with you. And perhaps I'm about to ask you to pull back the curtain a little bit on your own process or methods here as it relates to what you've just been describing. Just how intentional, I mean, obviously it's intentional, so intentional is not the right word, but just how methodical are you at considering what's going on for other people? You know, is this a case of when you've got a big, like a big decision that's at stake or you need to get someone to help them to see your point of view? Do you sit down with your notebook or, you know, with a Miro board or something and and sort of map this out? Or is this something more that's more intuitive and that you've kind of tuned over time as you've worked with more and more people? I mean, it's probably more intuitive. I mean, I, I definitely try to start building relationships from our first interaction and um, one thing that I know about myself is, um, you know, coming from academics is very, very hierarchical. Um, and so it was very much like you speak when you're spoken to. And I have had to break down some of the trauma that I experienced in, in academics, even in my current role, you know, where I would say, you know, 25 to 30 percent of my week is is really managing up. It's talking to VP, SVP, GMs, et cetera. And I found that sometimes it was hard for me to find my voice. And so I intentionally, when I meet somebody for the first time, is I want to have a little bit of chit chat with them. Like, who are they? Where do they live? You know, where did they go on their last vacation? What do they like to do outside of work? And so from my initial engagement, like I'm really trying to understand who that person is as a person, because it actually makes it easier for me to interact with them. I no longer see them as like the SVP of such and such that I should be terrified of. You know, I see them as, you know, Joe, who lives in Texas and has two kids and loves to travel to wherever, you know, and so I think for, for me, it starts breaking down barriers right away. And I think when you can have casual conversation with people, you can also have hard conversations with people. You mentioned the fictitious, I'm assuming fictitious, Joe, the SVP. Have you been surprised at the way in which people who are further up the hierarchy, if you like, how they've responded to that very curious and almost very human way of interacting with them? You know, is this something that they're not accustomed to? Like they just don't get because people do have that sort of fear of God, if you like, of of their position within the organization? Uh, I mean, so, some approach it better than others, right? Yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while you hit a wall and you're like, okay, cool. Let's just check out why we're here. <laughs> Let's just get down to business. Um, but I think most, most of the time people are willing to engage. I mean, you don't want to hang out 15 minutes of a meeting there, but, but I, you know, I think people like to be seen and I think that people are pretty open to other people who are just curious and willing to engage with them. And so, you know, you definitely don't want it to get in the way of getting business done. But I think for the most part, you know, 95% of the time, it's really well received. Now, I heard you about six months ago, talk about what we're verging on here, which is your role as chief of staff to the VP, you're engaging with the VP, but you're also engaging with other senior leaders in that same or, or higher position across the organization. And one of the room, the areas or your professional practice that you saw room for growth in was what you had called executive presence. And that is that comfort, that ability to interact with those very, very senior leaders. And this was something back six months ago, you were, you were working to develop more. 
So I was curious, how is how has that development of executive presence been going? You know, what have you tried and succeeded at or perhaps failed at? Like what how have you been fine-tuning this and sort of really getting your feet under the desk of this new and very critical role in this function? Yeah, I mean, well, I've been very intentional and in leaning into it. I hired a professional coach to work with and really thinking through um, how to grow my executive presence, how to increase my sphere of influence, but really taking a step back kind of as I was just saying and figuring out like why was it difficult at times for myself like to put myself out there and to be seen and to be vulnerable um, and really kind of breaking that down uh, and figuring out how better to engage uh, really trusting that I, I do have a point of view and actually the worst thing that I could do is not share my point of view like essentially like that's why I'm here right is, is to help the organization to grow and expand. And so sometimes by being quiet, we're doing a disservice to everyone. Um, and that's something I'm telling my team all the time too. Like, we want you to speak up. Like we want to hear from you because, you know, ideas that are unseen, maybe missed opportunities. Um, I've been spending a lot more time journaling um, and really like, I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, doing like a lot of mantra repetition about, you know, having limitless potential, speaking with self-assurance and confidence and really trusting process to unfold. So really been thinking about this subject a lot, reflecting and doing the work that I think needs to be done to really level up. You mentioned a little earlier on about the trauma that you experienced in academics and listening to you talk about the role of your coach and the reflection that you've been doing through your journaling and the service that you've perhaps felt that you've done in the past to yourself and the organization by not stepping into that presence. Is this something that you'd be, that source of trauma, is this something that you you would be comfortable discussing and sharing with people, bearing in mind that there are probably people, possibly other women in positions of leadership that have similar experiences and would stand to gain something from hearing just where you've got to with your own journey of developing yourself on this? Absolutely. So what was the nature of that trauma? And, you know, again, I'm not a therapist. So like I said to you before we hit record, if if, uh, <laughs> if I'm asking you something you're not comfortable with, then please tell no, me. No, but no, what I did do. you experience? There, there, there's, there's all different levels of trauma, right? I mean, my definition of trauma here is really about something that limits your future self right? An experience or a set of experiences that have caused some sort of um, attachment injury or emotional damage that at some point in time percolates up to the surface and, and prevents you from doing X, Y, Z, right? It might be about that stuff. Um, for me, I think academics was very like, it was like a slow and steady burn. And I think that you know, there's some things that are below the surface that you don't even realize at the time. So I was in academics for 15 years. I had just about every role you can imagine. Academics started as a student, then was a research associate, and then study coordinator, um, postdoc, and then got into my directorship. And, you know, one thing that I always saw in academics is a very different approach to male versus female colleagues. I felt like a lot of the male voice was often the loudest in the room. Female voice sometimes was just kind of, you know, trying to get attention. Um, it felt like 
having a family was something that you could do, but you really need to focus on your work, you know, uh, make sure, you know, that we kind of keep the family to the side. Don't let it impact your work, you know? So just like not a real emphasis on like that work-life balance and really how, how to be a whole person. Um, I saw people consistently just, Academics is interesting because it, it is the definition of hustling for your work all the time. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, the dirty truth. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is publisher parish. You're sending papers in and people are telling you how, how awful they are. Um, and so it's just like constant rejection. Your grants only last three to five years. And so, you know, no funding, no grant, no job. You know, and so, and God forbid you study the things you're interested in. It's really about, you know, studying whatever is fundable by the, the whoever's the funding agency at the time. And so it's just a lot of, it, it kind of felt like constant gaslighting where it's like, oh my gosh, it's just a lot of like people pleasing and, and making sure that you're making all of these external audiences happy at all times with little to no feedback or encouragement, you know, going back to the hierarchical piece that it also felt like wherever you were in your career trajectory was when you actually got to really speak up in meetings. So, you know, um, in my final role as a staff director, and because I wasn't a faculty director, I was definitely lower on the totem pole. And so like, I, I learned a lot of behaviors around like when to speak hold that because if you spoke too early, somebody would talk over you, you know, it would just be like, it's not, your, it's not your turn kind of situation. And so you really learn a lot of like self-monitoring and making sure like you're coming in at the right time, only saying like a, whatever your piece was moving back out. And so like, I found myself doing that even now, and there's nothing in my current role that would indicate that that was, it's not hierarchical. It doesn't feel like that, but you really kind of learn to sit back, listen, try to read the room, you know, make sure that you're not stepping on any toes, you yeah. know? And so sounds very taxing. It was. It's just a lot of emotional regulation at any given time and, and, you know, making sure that you are perceived in a very specific way. Like as somebody who is pretty well tattooed at this point in my life, like, you know, wearing long sleeves to work, really watching my vocabulary. You know, I've also got some sailor tendencies, you know, and so, you know, like it was just a lot of self-monitoring, which takes a lot of bandwidth. And so I was, I was finding some of those tendencies popping back up and taking a lot of bandwidth, right? Where all of a sudden you're in a meeting and, and you realize that you haven't been completely present because you're thinking about the thing that you might want to say, but is it time to say it? Like, those types of things popping up. And so like really thinking about like, where did that um, tendency come from? Is it still serving me now? Good question. And if not, like how do we get over it and move forward? So what decision or commitment or promise or action have you taken now that you have realized that this is something that's not serving you? Like how have you started to change as a result? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm putting myself out there more than I was previously, you know, doing my best to really stay engaged at any minute and, and stay curious. I think, you know, I think some of the previous tendencies was like, don't speak until you have something really good to say, 
you're like trying to like contrive this good thing that you're going to say. <laughs> like the right? perfect interview question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Instead of like really being present and being like, oh, that's really interesting. I don't understand. Can you tell me about this thing? Right. Which is like, like how you would naturally approach conversation. Like it's almost becoming unnatural. So like really just staying engaged and present in the moment and like not feeling like any question is stupid. Like if I need clarity, if I want to know more, like digging in, giving my opinions, knowing that, you know, that, that folks aren't, everybody wants the best for you, right? Like people aren't really there to, to judge you and they're not going back to their next meeting being like, Oh my God, can you believe she said that in that meeting? You know? And so like really giving my, my space to change the way I was thinking about those situations and really just show up and be there. What you were saying about people aren't going back and talking to each other about, oh my God, did you hear what she said in that meeting? It's reminding me of, I had a leadership coach, a personal coach actually, maybe it's over a decade now. And we were met at this coffee, at this coffee shop, a cafe here in Auckland. And she asked me to stand on the chair outside where we were sitting. And such a fascinating exercise. It's always sat with me because, of course, my initial reaction was, like, I'm not standing up on this chair in front of all these other people. What are they going to think about me? They'll think I'm mad. And then I ended up doing it. And she was trying to reinforce to me the fact that everyone else is so in their own heads, focused on their own shit, that they're not actually uh-huh. that concerned about what you've said or what you're standing on or what you're wearing. Nope. A lot of that we've just internalized from okay. whatever experience. That is absolutely true. That's kind of the realization, right? Is to let yourself be seen. And we all say dumb things sometimes, right? But like people aren't, they're not keeping a catalog of it, right? They're not, they're not dinging you for it. People do want to hear what you have to say and they want you to be included in conversations. And I think, you know, just putting yourself out there and letting yourself be seen is the most important piece. So I've definitely been trying to do more of that and like keep that, keep that negative self chatter down. Sounds really healthy. I want to talk to you about your role with the VP, the relationship that you've got with the VP of UX research. And you've, you've said about this relationship and I'll quote you again. Now you've said in many ways, you're adding capacity and velocity to what the VP would be able to do as a single person. So that's you reflecting on the role of chief of staff. So how did you work out with the VP where they needed capacity and velocity? Was this something that was super obvious to both of you or was it sort of a more engaged um, dialogue that you needed to have to arrive at just how you were going to work together? Okay, so I feel like it's maybe a little bit of both because I feel like our relationship has just kind of organically grown over time. Um, and it, it's kind of an ongoing conversation too. So our, our relationship started when he joined service now a year ago and I was named his chief of staff. And so I think in the beginning, it was really getting to know each other, getting to know how each, each person works. Um, I think that we're, we're both similar and different enough, like that we, we, we think similarly, but differently enough that we can really challenge each other. And that's where I think we can expand what, what do they say? Like the sum is greater than, than the parts you know, where I think we can, we can really grow our, our thinking. Um, in his first, I would say six to eight months of service now, like I think he was really much, very much on a roadshow of like making sure he was meeting everyone and understanding the problems and like all of those things. Um, over the last 
four or five months, like we're really trying to get even more deliberate on what we're working on because, you know, so many things have bloomed to the surface. Like we can't, we can't focus on all of them. And so really figuring out what we want to prioritize, um, what he owns, uh, what, what I own and what we own together. Right. Um, so in, in a lot of situations, like he may be the one making the relationships and I may be the one sustaining the relationships. You know, so where it's like, okay, we've identified that this is a very important initiative. This is a very important relationship. So if you could keep this ongoing with this person or with their staff and make sure that we're moving that forward, or it may be something where it's like, okay, I'm actually just going to give this to you and you just run with it and just keep me up to date. You know, so I think we're, we're constantly having check-ins and, you know, sometimes we're having, you know, tough talks about, okay, maybe we've taken on too much at this point, but figure out like, what, what can we put on the back burner? We don't, we don't want to lose the trust of people, but we'd also lose the trust by saying that we can do things that maybe we can't do in 2023. And that's where we're really going back to what are our goals? What are our OKRs? How does this ladder up to that? Are those still our number one priority? Because if so, it has to, we have to focus on those things. And then this maybe we'll get to in 2024. So I think it's kind of an ongoing dialogue too of how we're focused on all of the things that we could be focused on organizationally. And your role and relationship that you've got, it's one where at least I get the sense that you have permission to have those hard conversations. It's almost the point of the role is to have someone there that can act as a sounding board in part for the vision or the strategy or whatever it is and co-develop that. But there's also hard conversations, like you said, that happen. How do you navigate those together? Like, how do you handle those situations when you're not immediately on the same page? And, and I, I want the real story here without, of course, breaching any confidentiality. But like, how do you actually get around those tricky situations where you're not seeing things the same way? I mean, I think one thing that we have, and I don't know if this is true of all, you know, chief of staff VP relationships is I feel like we have really good communication. Like I feel like we're both really good communicators. Right. And I don't think we sugarcoat things for each other. I think we're both really honest, like concise communicators too, where it's like, I don't know if that's the best idea. Tell me about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. like I, I don't know if that's what we want to pursue. And, and I think we just keep those conversations going and, and, you know, sometimes we talk those things to death, like, you know, not too long ago, Anand was in town and, and I think we had like a three or four hour meeting around prioritization and making sure we're focusing on the right, wrong thing, right thing. And, uh, you know, have we spun up too many relationships and, are we going to be able to do all of these things? And like, what is, and then the question is like, okay, well now how do we move forward? That prioritization, that's really interesting. Cause I I've heard you talk about uh, something that actually you first spoke about when you were building the research ops function. And it's a saying that I believe is quite a, almost a mantra of yours, which is you can do anything, but not everything. <laughs> It's, 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 it's on my vision board. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So it's, this is, seems to be quite central to the way in which you've managed to manage all the things that you're managing. And looking at your career and your role, it seems like you are 
definitely on the ascent, but you're also laddering different layers of responsibility on top of one another. It's, it's actually quite like I was thinking about your role. I'm thinking, gosh, I really don't understand how she does it all. So how do you go about identifying the some things that you should be doing? Or perhaps it's the other way around. Like, how do you go about identifying the some things that you shouldn't be doing? I mean, I think we've been very lucky here this year that we've gotten much clearer on prioritization and OKRs. Um, and so, you know, I try to think about everything we're doing in the way that it is, how does it ladder up to the things that we said we were going to do, right? We have three top OKRs. So how does the work that we're doing, how is it addressing those things? How it is addressing those goals? Um, I am flexible enough um, that, you know, there's times that other prioritization, other priorities are going to come up. Like we're seeing one right now um, in the generative AI space where I think we're going to be leaders in this space, but some other things have really needed to fall off. And so really that conversation is about, okay, we said we're going to do, we were going to do this thing. If we're stacking this thing and this thing against each other, like, is it okay if this falls off? And what is the narrative if this does fall off? Is it something we're coming back to? Is it something we need to tie a bow on? Is it like, like what, what is it that's going to, like, what, what are we doing with this priority that's no longer a priority? So, I mean, I think for me, like, I'm just consistently thinking about, like, what are the things we, that we promised this year? Is it helping get us closer to that goal? If it's something that's not, what happens to these goals? Is it okay for something to drop? What is the message? Who do we need to tell? I think for me, it's just like continuing to come back to whatever those core OKRs, goals, smart, you know, people have all the different things depending on the organization. But I think being very, very clear on like what you want to accomplish in X time period and thinking about, because there's so many things we do every day, right? I, I probably, I'm in meetings a good 30 hours a week. And people are constantly bringing things to me. So like really thinking about like, are these meetings, are these relationships, are they helping us further these goals or are they getting us further away from that? Because it sounds like it would be very easy to get distracted. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not, there's so many opportunities and there's so, so much, there's so many relationships and things that we could be doing, which are absolutely incredible. And that doesn't mean it can't go into a parking lot to consider later. I like that. And it's kind of touching on something that you mentioned just a few seconds ago, which was which of these goals might we need to drop or something to that effect, which almost sounds like sometimes you have to be the bearer of bad news or what could be perceived <laughs> as bad news. It sounds like maybe I'm, I'm, I'm touching on something here. Mm-hmm. That's not a role that people generally like to play, right? Like most of us, generalizing here, most of us want to please other people. So, for example, if you if you do have to drop some goals that might impact something that's quite important to someone in your team, your wider team, what does that look like? How do you have those difficult conversations? I mean, I think it's just really approaching it from an honest place. You know, like this is what we essentially promised. Like this is this is where we were trying to get. These other things have come into play. They're a priority for the business. They are likely a priority for that person in some way as well, if they're laddering up that that high. And then figuring out what's the plan for the deliverable, for the OKR, for whatever we had promised previously. 
right? So is it, uh, we, we may not be able to take it all the way over the finish line, but we can get X, Y, Z done. Is it, it, we actually need to extend the, the timeline in order to get it done. We still think it's really important, but it may be that we need to finish it in Q1 of 2024 in order to get it to where we were hoping to get it. Um, is it a rescope? Either we, you know, deliver at a lesser fidelity and or is it still a priority and is it the same priority? Like, does it look exactly the same as the day that we wrote it down? Or is there somewhere where we can pivot, where we can get creative? There's times that we figure out, like, you know this better than anybody from a resourcing perspective. Is it something where we can lean on somebody else to help us do that, whether it be through vendor support a uh, contractor, contingent worker, you know, is it is there somewhere else that we can invest where we can get this over the line? It may be a quarter later, but like, let's consider consider what are our alternate resources for getting the work done. So I, I think just being honest, one thing, team knows this really well, like communication to me, like I just, people need to know where you're at with things. Otherwise people don't think things are happening. So if something is changing, you got to let people know if you can't make a deadline. You got to let people know. And I think people, people are really understanding, but you need to tell them, you know, and then I think you can think of creative solutions for still getting the job done. I'm hearing a couple of things. One is about being honest. It's almost as if it's better just to pull that bandaid off quickly. It's yeah, like things have changed. Kind. Right. And there's also something that I was wondering around, the options that you you give people, is this something where you often will think through what those options are? So you're constraining those decisions within a set that's workable, but still giving people, I suppose, the ability to exercise some free will within that choice set? Or are you more of the type of person that will give people, different people are different, of course, until in terms of the responsibility you can give them, but will you generally defer to them to make the best decision based on what it is that you've communicated to them about the high level that has changed? Oh, that's an interesting one. I think I am, I'm very much a, like, let's figure like, let's collaborate and figure out what a potential solution is, you know? And I think what's really nice is from where I am in the organization, like I do have a beautiful view of you know, where are we with operational spending? Where can we pull other levers? Where could we bring in people from across different teams? And so like, I think, you know, even in just having a conversation with people, I can think about like, Hey, we could try this or we could try that, or maybe we could do this. Like, what do you think about this idea? And so like, I think when you come together, like I, I like to really kind of like co-create different ideas and then really look to them for now, what do we want to do? Now, Avra, I'm just mindful of time. I'm going to bring the show down to a close for us now. And I have uh, one final question for you. All right. Hey, oh, boy. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we're all good. We're all good. We'll be fine. Uh, your career is one of not allowing yourself to be limited. And this is something that you've spoken about before, and I know that you're very passionate about, and yet you want other people to realize as well. So what message or story do you want to share with the people listening today about what they might be telling themselves that might not be serving them well? I guess more than anything, I feel like who you are today doesn't need to define who you are tomorrow, right? And I feel like we can be whoever we want to be if we're willing to make the investment, you know? And and th that means feeling really 
uncomfortable a lot of the time. Like I'm very committed to growth and that means that I don't get to sit back and be comfortable hardly ever. Like I have been, you know, really pushing myself since the day I started service now. And I have, I have definitely felt incredibly uncomfortable most of the time, but it's because I believe in my potential I'm, I'm interested in always growing and knowing more. And so I think, you know, if you're willing to invest and, you know, be uncomfortable and consider, you know, you know, where are your strengths, where are your potential growth areas and how do you fill those gaps? Is it through training? Is it through mentorship? Is it through professional coach? Is it through therapy? Is it through, you know, chats with, with friends? I, it could be any of those things, but like lean in invest in yourself, do those things, be okay with kind of delayed gratification. Like nothing good comes easy. Um, I feel like I'm just joining all these damn quotes. Um, You're good. It's good. They're, they're flowing. They're just flowing. Right. But, but, but I, but I think it's true. Like I think, yeah. you know, things always feel far away in the moment, but like as somebody who spent eight years in grad school and postdoc, like it went by like that. And I've been done for over 10 years now. And it's like, wow, if somebody would have told me like the ways that those things would have paid off, you know, I wouldn't have totally believed them, but I'm so glad I was willing to do the work and, and just like sink into the muck in order to, to really grow as a person. That's such an important point to share with everyone and a great place to wrap this conversation up. I've really enjoyed spending this time with you today. Thank you for so generously sharing your stories and insights with me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Love the conversation. No, it's been my pleasure. And Avra, if people want to keep up with you and your contributions to the field, they want to follow along or connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, definitely my LinkedIn is the best place to do that. And I am unfortunately very slow <laughs> at this point in responding. So I'm so, so sorry, everyone. Um, thank you for those who have reached out. Um, I try to be as active as I can be, but there's there's times that I just can't. So um, but definitely follow me there. I post anything like podcasts, um, publications, etc. Wonderful. Thanks, Avra. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Avra and all of the things that we've spoken about. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX research, product management, and design, don't forget to leave a review. Subscribe as well so that the podcast turns up every two weeks. And tell someone else about the show if you think they would get value from these conversations at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just search for Brendan Jarvis, or you can find a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes, or head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!